Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here this week with a special guest, Chris Birkenbein from the Dash of Science podcast, or actually a Dash of Science podcast. Man, the grammar is not my forte today, man. <laughs> it's it's you can mix it back and forth. It, I, I usually drop the A when I'm talking about it, but you're right, it does have an A in the beginning of it. So <laughs> yeah, it's you know it's funny when people ask me about this show, I'm always like, oh, the Mad Scientist podcast, and they're like, oh, Mad Scientist podcast, and no, the Mad Scientist. The Mad Scientist. Okay. Yeah, I have to be I, careful because there was a there's a food scientist who started a blog like two years ago, and it lasted for one year, but that site is still up there, <laughs> and so it's it's j- that one's just Dash of Science, which is why I got an A in mine. Uh, oh but, you know, man, little tricky thing. So hopefully he doesn't come back and decide he wants <sighs> that back. <laughs> the hard, you know, man, it's the hard part of doing podcasts. Mm-hmm. So uh, so Chris is actually a range systems engineer for NASA. Mm-hmm. He, uh, like I said, does a really great podcast on science and uh, just just generally is kind of a very knowledgeable, cool guy that I wanted to have on the show. So, Chris, why don't you give the listeners a little bit of intro on you? Sure. Uh, So, uh, like you said, my name is Chris and I have a podcast about science Uh, and I love talking about science, all types of science with, uh, you know, anybody who will. Uh, My background is I have a undergraduate degree in applied physics uh, and I'm about half a paper away from my master's degree in space studies, uh, specifically space engineering, just, uh, you know, engineering constructs, stuff like that. Uh, and I'm hoping to continue that on into a PhD of some sort at some point. Uh, but, you know, you got to get that around work. But uh, for my job, I work at NASA Armstrong Flight Research Center, which most people even in NASA are like, where's that? Uh, <laughs> it's because it used to be called Dryden Flight Research Center. Uh, and that's the place where all of the astronauts were at uh, Edwards Air Force Base before they became astronauts doing, uh, you know, flight test stuff. So uh, the shuttle landed here a couple of times. But uh, out here we do mostly aeronautics instead of space stuff. We do deal a little bit like uh, we did some stuff with uh, Dream Chaser from Sierra Nevada. And we got some stuff with Boeing uh, CST-100. They might land here on their flight tests. Uh, but mostly we do... Uh, airplanes related stuff right now some of our big projects are working on like quieting uh, the, so- the sonic booms for you know going mock which uh, a lot of people don't realize is a big deal unless you live outside of an air force base uh, doing <laughs> testing <laughs> uh, there's many uh, shattered windows stories we have special insurance just to go out and fix people's windows when need be uh, <laughs> but yeah, so the hope is that you can get that quieted down enough that it becomes less a nuisance to people. And then you can start having, uh, hypersonic corridors for travel for much faster travel. So very cool. Yeah. Oh man. That's such an interesting, that honestly is such an interesting point about, you know, like you said, making, making air travel faster. Well, once you hit that sound barrier, right, you're going to mm-hmm. have these, you know, just, I mean, I know I personally, you know, grew up where I grew up in New York City, Staten Island. Uh, you know, we're Newark Air Force or Newark Air Force. Newark Airport is right near us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my kind of a lot of my memories of being home are, you know, uh, hanging out and playing around and whatever and then stopping to look at a plane fly overhead. Right. You know, and just the noise, like that constant noise of a plane going past your house. It's, you know, when I got to when I got to school in New Hampshire, like just how quiet it actually was without airplanes always going right. by me freaked me out, you know, besides yeah. just the, the darkness too, like, you know, going from New York to uh, the woods essentially, at mm-hmm. least for me. So that's, that's very, very interesting. Um, so I guess with this kind of aeronautics and with space science, generally mm-hmm. it's such a huge field and so many people really are interested in, so many people are interested in getting into it. And I actually get a lot of questions, you know, I know my, my cousins or, you know, friends who have kids or whatever will ask me, 
you know, oh, you know, they'll introduce me as, you know, Chris and oh, he, he does a science podcast and he's kind of a science, you know, he's, he's a trained scientist and everything. Mm-hmm. And the kids are always like, oh, cool. You know, what do you think about space? And I'm like, <laughs> well, I did a lot of science on rocks. And then they're like, oh, okay. And they go back to their Game Boys, you know, like I'm, I'm the dis, I'm the disappointing scientist, I right. guess that they know. Um, how did you, what's kind of that academic progression for for getting involved, say, in kind of space or, or science research of that sort that has to do with, you know, rocketry, space, everything sure. else. Well, let me let me start off with just saying that pretty much every science is utilized when you're doing space. If you if you're taking that path, right, if that's your interest, even rocks, when you get down to it, when you like look at like asteroids and stuff like that, that is geology. It is 100 percent geology. Uh, which as a younger person, I was very uh, disappointed to learn <laughs> because <laughs> like for me, you know, geology, I mean, it's a, there's a lot of memorization of, you know, it, it's kind of like when you're learning chemistry in the beginning, right? And you're learning chemical formulas and compounds and stuff. It's just a lot of memorizing names uh, at the very low level. Uh, and I don't do well with memorization. I do well with math and, and, you know, a process, you know, that's why I love physics. Cause if you got F equals MA down, you can pretty much derive most anything else you need from that. Uh, right. <laughs> but yeah, so for me, uh, I was about eight years old when I decided that I wanted to work for NASA. Uh, and of course I wanted to be an astronaut like many, uh, young kids do. And I'm still, I'm still hoping to be, I applied this last time knowing that I wasn't quite qualified yet and I plan on, uh, applying next time. So, uh, cross your fingers for me. But, uh, you know, my path was a little, I guess, curvy, for lack of a better word. Uh, So I essentially, I went to school initially for electrical engineering, and I ended up going from there to the military uh, to serve time because a lot of people that were astronauts had a military background. Uh, And then from there, I came back out, tried to go back into electrical engineering and realized that there's just so much formula memorization in electrical engineering and not a lot of fundamental understanding of why those things worked. Uh, so I jumped into physics and I, I love physics, but you know, then you lose your hands on, uh, you know, part of that. So that kind of led me into a new program at my school called applied physics. So, uh, since the program was new, I was lucky enough to be able to like hand pick which engineering courses I wanted to put into my degree, which mm-hmm. is an amazing benefit. Let me tell you that, but it's also a little scary because you're not quite sure if you're going to build something that's useful or you're going to get out with a degree and nobody wants you. Right. but uh the good thing about physics is it does give you a broad understanding and problem solving as a lot of sciences do and so it's pretty easy to get into most engineering fields so if you like science uh and and you don't have a problem with math i definitely recommend physics as a as an undergraduate degree because you can branch out into pretty much any other type of science from there i think depending on what you want to do Uh, And as far as getting into NASA goes, the hardest part about getting into NASA is it's a government job, a federal job, and that's hard. But if you find, uh, you know, you go on USA Jobs and you look in there, they'll have all sorts of opportunities for internships and pathways that you can use to get in there. And like I said earlier, really uh, any science or any engineering is going to be able to get you a job in that field. It just really depends on what your interests are. So I don't think that it's limited by necessarily a specific path so much as it is by what it is you want to specifically do if that makes sense hmm. yeah absolutely no it, it definitely does i mean you know it's a lot of the research so when i first got to grad school for the phd they you know my professor and i had kind of a list of of ideas that he wanted to work on mm-hmm. and then i had kind of a list of ideas that i wanted to work on and we sort of tried to you know you try to put them together. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, but a lot of the ideas that he was working with are a lot of the applications that kind of the first early, you know, um, grant applications and kind of, you know, presentations and whatever, a lot of that early stuff that we focused on was, Oh, this, you know, this would be good for space travel. Or this mm-hmm. would be good for confined areas, right. For, right. uh, you know, CO2 conversion to oxygen, say, for, you know, prolonged travel or prolonged confinement someplace sure. or, uh, you know, heat, uh, heat transfer materials or radiation shielding. Um, all that kind of stuff was really a, an initial thing that I had never even considered being, you know, uh, I wanted to work on, you know, nanomaterials. Right. And obviously at the, you know, when you first get into that kind of world, you're thinking like, oh, I want to build, you know, 
I want to make a nanorobot that'll block out the sun. <laughs> right. You know, like that's your first kind of <laughs> and thing. And you get into that and you realize that they're making springs, like nanostructure right, yeah. springs, and that's <laughs> the extent. <laughs> right, yeah. You're like, oh my goodness, we're the farthest we are is a nano spring, and you know, <laughs> it's like one guy at Bell Labs, and mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's um yeah, it's it's very, very interesting. So it's it's cool though to think of all the applications and stuff. And you're right. I mean, it's part of the reason that I think people want us to try and fund NASA further or want to start looking at, you know, going to Mars, going out there, going back to the moon. Cause there was, you know, there's just so much of our science that came, came from those projects, mm-hmm. you know? And I mean, it's just because, you know, science is hard to fund without the government. Right. So, especially like beginning level science that doesn't have any necessary, necessary commercial payoff. Right. Right. You have nothing there until, you know, until you're in space and you realize, oh, man, all this mm-hmm. stuff we worked on is, you know, look how cool Velcro is. Right. Right. So, you know, are you, uh, are you familiar with NASA spinoff? No, actually. So what is that? So NASA spinoff is an annual publication that NASA does that really just highlights all of the technology and stuff that's come out of some form of NASA grant or work that is being used commercially in other aspects outside of space. It's really an amazing uh uh, literature to go through because I mean you've heard you know what do we get like why are we going to space what does that do for us uh, a lot <laughs> a lot that has nothing even to do with space yeah and you don't and you don't realize it in your daily life because well it, it, you know parts of this argument I love the two ways this argument gets used right the first mm-hmm. one is what do we get from space who cares whatever mm-hmm. the other side of it usually is I don't understand how we made the strides to get this technology. Therefore, it must have been aliens, <laughs> right? Like, yes. And in both cases, the answer is no. No. NASA has been working on this for years, and it just yep. so happened that it finally came out to something cool. Yep, exactly. And and it's probably been, you know, you know, the DOD also, you know, has a lot of stuff, DARPA. Uh, what I find amazing is, they'll like with DARPA specifically, I've uh, had the uh, both the fortunate and unfortunate uh, opportunity to work with them on a couple of projects and their mentality is just uh, it's completely backwards from I think NASA is and whereas their most important item on a project is is schedule right they have a very limited schedule and they will throw all of the money in the world that they can get their hands on at it but once it gets to that point in the schedule it's just done and so they'll get great strides in this technology, but it won't quite be enough to be actually practical for anything. And then they'll just stop and then it'll just sit there uh, for months or years until somebody else comes across that research and then they move on it. And then it becomes this, you know, public known entity that is just amazing. But we've actually known about it for a decade. So that's really interesting. I, you know, I had never, I, I had never even, you know, you hear about that with, say, in other fields, right? Like mm-hmm. in my own field. Um, you know, we, we, we first discovered, uh, clays for catalyst for catalysis in like the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And then we stopped using them cause we were like, well, we just can't get enough speed out of these dang things. Mm-hmm. They don't have any pores. Right. And then in the sixties, all of a sudden we discovered zeolites and, or we discovered how useful zeolites could be. And suddenly people started caring about clays again. Right. And so it's like, you know, it's an area where you do have this kind of fundamental, it looks like a big jump in knowledge. Right. But really, it's just kind of been, it's been sitting on the back burner, right? What's, what, what would you give as an example, I guess, of something like that? Well, something that's maybe not necessarily out yet, if you think about like, uh, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the problems that we have with nuclear energy in this country and in the world about misunderstanding of safety and stuff. Uh, and that's affected a lot of the things that we're able to do in space with nuclear propulsion. So we have something called uh, nuclear pulse uh, propulsion, and we aren't using it yet. But when it becomes something that we're actually using, uh, I mean, this has the capability of getting us from, you know, here to Proxima Centauri in 100 years. Uh, mm. And this is something that we've known about since the 30s. In fact, we've had various different... Uh, you know, experimentations with it. The reason why we don't do it anymore is because the very initial, you know, tests would have required major nuclear fallout on ignition for launching these into space. Obviously, we've moved past that, but there was such a huge, you know, backlash from the public about safety, and at the time, rightly so, but it's kind of stuck around to where we haven't made any further actual physical uh, progress in these things. But like the the math and the knowledge and the theory is all there. 
So we're going to, at some point, you know, have this propulsion system that just blows everybody away. And, you know, someone's going to be like, oh, yeah, aliens. No, we've known about this for near 100 years now. <laughs> right. I was I was going to say, I can't wait for the Ancient Aliens episode on that. I know, right? Great. You know, hopefully... <laughs> Hopefully we won't shape the craft like a bell. Right. Otherwise oh, we'll man. really we'll really be in, <laughs> yep. we'll really be getting into trouble there. So actually that kind of brings us to the topic of why I originally reached out to you to have you come on mm-hmm. is this idea of zero point energy. Yes. Right and that kind of how we can use it for propulsion. So for the listeners out there who, you know, so we've we've kind of been making veiled um I want to say veiled threats, but that's that's the wrong term here for this. We've been making veiled references to this idea in a lot of our episodes on To the Stars Academy. It's and I kind of gave a I gave a very sort of half, uh, kind of a halfway explanation of kind of how it works. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I mean, part of that is because it's just it's very complicated it and is. it's hard to wrap your head around generally. Um, and also just because, you know, I kind of wanted to get someone who had a bit more of a background in this to come and discuss it with us. And so the, the way that it's been used in kind of the fringe science, you know, world right now is that it is a potential way to generate both infinite energy Mm-hmm. Right. Which that's how we kind of came at it was, well, that just fundamentally breaks um, the laws of thermodynamics. Right. right? You can't get anything <laughs> for free. And then also that it can be used, therefore, for extreme propulsion systems or, or right. very fast travel through space. And so the argument has been made, let's say, by, you know, um, by some famous scientists or famous science figures, let's mm-hmm. say, today. Uh, who are part of, say, to the Stars Academy, but also by, you know, um, people like uh, Bob Lazar, right? Right. So who, you know, uh, I'm sure you know this, but basically, you know, claims that he was at Area 51 and worked with alien propulsion and yada, yada, right? Yada, right. So first off, I guess, kind of how would you describe the, the how would you describe zero point energy to someone who knew, you know, Sure. A, a high school level of physics. That, that's a that's a hard thing to do, because when we're talking about quantum anything, first of all, we see all these articles, you know, and we know how articles work. Somebody writes a good article and then somebody else uh, makes a ridiculous title for it to get you to click on it. Right. So we see quantum attached to all these amazing actual real things that are going on and it becomes like this magic word. But when you get down to quantum mechanics and, and quantum physics in general, everybody's got to understand that to really understand this, it's not that it takes a really smart person. It just takes somebody who had the time and money to invest a couple of years worth of academic study or even on your own, right? If, if you go that route. So it's, there's nothing wrong with not understanding it initially, but you can't trust, uh, don't trust somebody because they're a scientist, trust somebody because they, they lead you to valid, uh, sources, right? We trust research. We don't trust the scientist. Uh, that, that's what I always say about everything. So, cause you'll find a scientist in every field that will have, you know, uh, put it politely wackadoodle ideas or woo ideas. So that it's not impossible to find somebody with valid credentials with invalid ideas. Right. I love, uh, I love on, uh, I actually love on ancient aliens. They have a guy who is a heart surgeon mm-hmm. that they tote out sometimes. And they're like, you know, Oh, doctor, whatever heart surgeon. And he's talking about, you know, how it must've been, it was impossible for the, for the, Egyptians to build the pyramids and you're like, what do you know? This isn't a heart. You know what I mean? Get back in surgery, dude. Get out of here. (laughs) That's a very true point. Uh, But to get back to your question. So when we're talking about zero point energy, uh, essentially quantum field theory predicts that there exists uh, a certain amount of energy, right? The lowest possible energy that the quantum mechanical system can have. Uh, And then in classical, uh, you've got a minimum energy of that system and there's a difference between these things. Okay. Uh, and so that's kind of one of the fundamental problems that exists in physics today. And when you're talking about quantum physics, uh, that lowest energy point, it fluctuates uh, and it fluctuates because of the uncertainty principle. Uh, and so essentially you're looking at that, the differences in those energies and that's what that zero point energy is. Uh, I don't know how to explain that in a better way than that, but if you just think about it as the differences in that point for the energy that it can have as it's fluctuating and as well as the difference between the classical and the quantum states. 
So, okay. So let's, let's just kind of, let's do some quick definitions for listeners here. Sure. Right. So a quantum mechanical system is in this case, we're talking about a field like, sure. you know, a, a, a imagine you have a box and it has inside of it particles mm-hmm. and then you evacuate the box right? Mm-hmm. That's the system we're talking about here. Uh, an area with, in the, is, that, is that the correct understanding? My correct understanding here? Sure. That yeah. we're, we're getting to a, a perfect vacuum, essentially, that should have the lowest possible energy state that can exist, which is absolute nothing at near absolute zero right. or at absolute zero. With the caveat of understanding that we don't necessarily have a perfect vacuum anywhere, but yeah, I mean, right. so like as an example, you have, uh, say, the electromagnetic field, right? And and through theory, it's estimated that this has, I think it's uh, 10, 10 to the 112 ergs per centimeter cubed, uh, which is about, uh, I think that's, what is that? And it's pretty close to joules, I think, if I remember correctly. But uh, essentially, this is this is 10 with 112 zeros behind it. That is a massive number, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when you look at like analysis of the expansion of the universe, we experimentally get out through observation that it's only 10 to the negative eight. That's a huge, huge difference, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're going 112 zeros to, you know, a decimal with eight zeros in it. Uh, So this is kind of that fundamental problem that's unsolved. And I think this reason is what leads to a lot of the, I guess, the woo, for lack of a better word. Okay, so the the disparity here too, again, for for listeners is... Based on based on the way that we understand the universe through the lens of quantum mechanics, mm-hmm. there is a certain minimum energy that has to exist in the universe. Right. Even in the even in the case of the lowest possible energy in a system. In standard physics, though, before quantum mechanics, the kind of physics that we use to explain big objects, mm-hmm. but which really doesn't work for small objects anymore. Right. There is another energy. And so what people who espouse zero point energy as a theory are saying is that both of those theories have to be correct simultaneously. And, you know, there has to be some obvious pool of energy someplace that we can pull from that explains this disparity in the energies observed versus expected. Right. Right. So and that's kind of the fundamental, I think, part that we couldn't we didn't really get to last time. I mentioned that it. For this to be true, you have to essentially, you essentially have to get rid of a fundamental part of quantum mechanic, quantum mechanical theory. Right. Right. You, you're basically working, um, you know, I think I said that it was like the voluminous ether theory when we right. first talked, you know, when I first talked about it on the show, but it's, it is on its own kind of a holdover idea. And so you're trying to kind of fit these two things together that don't even they don't even exist in the same realm. Sure. Right. It's it's kind of I mean, for a a simple explanation, it's like trying to put, you know, a Chevy. I don't know. Trying to put the door of a Chevy on a Ford. Right. right? You can kind of get it to work, but it's going to look dumb. Well, the best way that I have that I think really explains this is I think people come at because we talk about a unifying theory that's going to unify, you know, classical and quantum. Right. Uh, and we always have this understanding that, like you said, both of these things are correct and we're just not combining them together. But I don't think that's necessarily true. And the perfect example that I've always come up with for that is uh, Newtonian physics versus uh, relative physics, right? We sure. use Newtonian physics in everyday stuff because it works, uh, even though we know that Newton's theories aren't complete. Those those equations don't cover everything. But if you're talking about the speed of a car or the speed of a baseball on the surface of the Earth, they get us close enough that we can't measure the distance in everyday life. But those formulas break down when we're talking about like satellites and GPS and GPS doesn't work with Newtonian physics. You have to use relativistic physics, but that's much more complicated. Uh, So why would you do all that complicated math that gets you the same level of precision that you can perceive when doing something at non-relativistic speeds, right? So I think that might be potentially something that's going on with, you know, classical versus quantum. Uh, First of all, there's stuff about quantum that we obviously don't understand yet, but also uh, classical still gives us answers that work. And the importance of having 
these these functions and these theories that we have is that we're able to make predictions, correct? So if we have something that allows us to make correct predictions within the context of what we're doing, then it doesn't necessarily matter if it's 100% correct or not. So once we figure out how quantum theory works like completely, I suspect that it'll be very similar to what we do with Newtonian physics. Yes, we know that that's not 100% accurate. That's not the whole story, but it's easier to do and it works for what we're doing. So that's kind of where I see that going, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. It's the dif- it's the difference between using a hammer and a sledgehammer. Right. Right. The hammer is good for smaller things than the sledgehammer is. They both give you the same result, maybe if you use them. Mm-hmm. But one of them is better for tearing down a building than the other one is for, you know. Correct. So uh, I guess what are because there is some. There is some idea, though, about. This being essentially like a perpetual motion kind of right. system, right? Because again, they're arguing that there is this, mm-hmm. they're arguing that there is this, uh, this difference in energy has to be, you know, we have to be able to get it somehow. Right. Right. But again, we've, as we've kind of pointed out, it's almost a fundamental misunderstanding of the two, the two things. Right. Sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, it's like it's there's a stupid thing going on on Facebook right now, which is like, you know, you steal a hundred dollars from a bakery, you then buy seventy dollars worth of bread, and they give you a thirty dollar discount. How much money did you oh. actually steal from the bakery? <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, we're just not going to get into it right now because it's it's frustrating to no end the answers that I've seen. Yes. But um, I would just like to point I- out that I hate the very fundamental math questions that are posted on there that are deliberately stated in a way to make everybody feel stupid. That doesn't help anybody. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not good. Right. Like math. Math is hard enough for some people. Like, don't don't make it worse with crazy questions like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it is it's kind of like, you know, you uh, you lost one hundred dollars in your wallet. And then you find it again and you're like, oh, I made two hundred dollars, right. <laughs> you know, and it's like, no, you, no, you didn't. Yeah. Like, you lost it. You lost it before. And now you just found it again. Yep. So there is there still has to be a place where this energy is coming from for us to pull it out again. Right. The uh, but some of these ideas have now taken on kind of a life of their own where they're starting. People are starting to argue that we could use these for propulsion. Right. And the, so the essential way to do that would be. Right. You you just find a way to harness the energy somehow and then you just use it to turn an engine. Sure. Right? Or you, you know, use it to push, uh, push a ship somehow. Yeah, there's well, a what, there's a couple of different aspects there. Like the I, I assume you're trying to get into like the Casimir effect and uh, like the with the uh, the EM engine that was big news a while back and like that absolute, kind of stuff. Right. Absolutely. So first off, I guess, explain as best as best as anyone can. Sure. Explain kind of the Casimir effect. Well, let's kind of take a step back because we're talking about how like the idea of perpetual motion energy. What I find interesting is that the same arguments that disprove perpetual motion and unlimited energy really are the exact same arguments that invalidate these, these talks about pulling. Uh, So if you talk about like, I mean, entropy, right? Thermodynamics is not the simplest part of physics. Uh, So entropy is essentially the degree of randomness within a system, right? It's uh, the measurement of the unavailability of energy. So when you convert whatever energy into mechanical work, you're reducing the availability of stuff that you can turn into energy, and thus you are creating more entropy. So uh, the universe tends towards disorder, which means entropy in a closed system kind of always increases. So once you get to perfect equilibrium, you can't pull anything out of that system. Uh, And kind of what I like to think about with, we're talking about like zero point energy, right? So on my show, we've talked a lot about like pressure and space vehicles. So when you pump a gas into a closed vessel, you increase the pressure. Uh, And when there's a mismatch between the pressure inside and outside, you create this differential that becomes very dangerous to essentially puncture that vessel because all that fluid mass is going to then rush towards, uh, you know, the higher from higher pressure to lower pressure. Uh, but sure. when that movement happens, we now have the ability to convert that into mechanical energy, say like through a turbine. The same thing goes on with electricity, right? Voltage is a measure of the imbalance between two areas. So when you create an imbalance, those electrons flow and now you have electrical energy. But the thing in both of these examples is uh, it doesn't matter how much pressure you have. It doesn't matter how many electrons you have. What matters is the difference between the two points. So even if there is this insane amount of energy within the quantum field of a vacuum, 
that vacuum overall is the same everywhere, and thus it's already in equilibrium. Uh, so extracting energy from that becomes the problem, as you said, and and that's oh, really that's, why. That's actually really interesting. So I think, okay, so for a simple analogy with physical things that you might feel for our listeners, because I know I need the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's like saying, you know, if you're 20,000 uh, feet below the surface of the water, you're at a certain pressure, but that pressure is the same everywhere horizontally. Right. So you don't feel a wave. Exactly. Right? You don't you don't feel a wave. Whereas if you were at the surface of the water and you had a, uh, you know, a sudden surge of pressure that created a 20,000 foot uh, pressure of water, um, you know, wave, you would you would feel that wave. Right. Because it's right. going from that difference between the two. Yeah, that's actually really, that's actually a hilariously elegant uh, answer. It's and it's really simple, right? <laughs> so those so, so as as a whole, this is things at equilibrium. So the only way that we could ever draw anything from this is we would have to introduce some form of disequilibrium at a specific point, right? Uh, and that's where the Casimir effect really comes into play. So this is if you bring a pair of conducting plates close together, and by close, I'm talking like uh, the biggest distance I've ever seen experimentally is two micrometers. Uh, so that's 10 to the negative six, right? We're talking really, really close. Uh, and so when you do this, some of the virtual particles will be left out between them. So if, if anybody's not familiar with virtual particles, uh, so there's a fluctuation basically that shows some of the characteristics of regular particles, but they only exist for a very minute period of time, uh, which again is defined by the uncertainty principle. Kind of the existence comes from perturba- uh, perturbation theory that uh uh, ordinary particles interact by exchanging these virtual particles, right? Uh, so I guess without diving off to the deep end of quantum mechanics, the uncertainty principle is just one of the ways of asserting a limit uh, to the precision that uh, a pair of physical properties can be known, right? So that mm-hmm. whole, you know how fast it's going or you know where it's at, but you can't know both exactly. Uh, so this kind of all comes out into what defines the existence of these virtual particles. And again, in quantum mechanics, this is how two particles interact, like how they exchange, like in this particular case, momentum. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, so by doing this, you're lowering the vacuum energy in that region. Uh, it creates basically the same like a pressure differential with an actual measurable force, which will pull the plates towards each other, uh, or rather push them towards each other, depending on how you look at it. And that is a mechanical energy, right? You've now taken mechanical energy out of this system. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But the problem with this is... Like any other, I mean, we've all seen the various different types of free energy or perpetual motion machines. So, like, if you talk about uh, a rock, you tie a rock to something and you drop it and gravity pulls it down and you use that mechanical energy to do something, right? But in order to start that thing over again, you have to get that rock back up to where it started, which takes energy. Same thing with the with these plates. If you want to repeat this, you have to now separate those plates from each other. And that takes, coincidentally, the exact same amount of energy that it releases when it comes together. Except for uh, we live in reality, and in reality, everything's messy, and we lose energy through, like, you know, thermal energy and these other actions, friction, whatever. So it's just like the craw engine of trying to get a 100% efficient engine, right? Uh, The best case scenario is that you're able to get 100% of the energy out of this system than it takes to set it up and then you're at net zero so you're never getting more energy and this is this is you know i never want to say that nothing will ever be disproven because i don't think that's a very scientific standpoint but this is one of the fundamental physics properties that has been tested enough uh throughout the history of mankind that i feel that it's pretty solidly tested at least within the confines of our system here on earth right, right? No, if, if the second <laughs> if the second law of thermodynamics gets disproven in our lifetime things will be a lot right. worse i, I everybody wait, every we, physicist will just throw their books in and go home and start I was over gonna, yeah <laughs> i was gonna say i don't know what 
Um, I don't know what any of us will, you know, our fridges will start, stop working. We'll just, you know, yep. <laughs> freaking out. Like, no, man. I, so I guess I have a couple of, and maybe these are too deep or maybe these are too kind of, you know, so, okay. So you have these two plates here that are sitting next to each other. Mm-hmm. They're, they're interacting by exchanging virtual particles, right? The particles that are releasing the virtual particles, are those losing measurable energy? So when you're dealing with interacting with virtual particles, uh, you got to understand because of the laws of physics, because uh, conservation of momentum and conservation of energy, you can't say transfer momentum into a virtual particle without getting a real particle off the other side. And that real particle is going to contain all of the energy that you put into it, right? And it's basically that becomes the... uh, the propulsive uh, grain, so to speak, at the end of it. Uh, so there's no way to put energy into that virtual particle and not have it come out somewhere, which is actually part of the ideas that some people have, like behind the EM uh, engine. So. Okay. All right. So the idea. Okay. So, but so still though, the idea is that you are you have this close. You know, if you have a closed system where these two things are interacting, mm-hmm. energy is still leaving. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Got it. Okay. That makes perfect. That I mean, it makes sense. Not perfect sense, but it makes sense. <laughs> it's right? as much sense as we can have in a another sixty-minute podcast, right? <laughs> right. Well, this you know, this is precisely why I decided that fluids was the smallest I wanted to get. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you know, na- I mean, <laughs> nanoparticles are fine. We're starting to get kind of weird. Right. But it's not weird enough that I'm you know scratching my head all the time. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So so how are then? I guess so. This and so the idea here for these people would be. This Casimir effect suggests that for them, at least, they think, well, there's this energy in their minds is coming from this disparity of the zero point field mm-hmm. and therefore can be pulled out without any uh, without any loss of energy to reset the system. Right. But obviously what we're saying is that, no, that, that can't be the case. Right. And in fact, experiments have proven that it's not the case. And uh, usually the problem comes into not properly bounding the experiment, if that makes sense. So we talk about a closed system, right? And that means you put these bounds on the system where you're not taking in any energy or releasing any energy outside of these bounds. So usually what happens is they're bounding their system improperly. So we are putting in momentum into these virtual particles and these virtual particles are popping out real particles outside of the system that they've defined. And thus to them, they have thrust. Got it. Okay. So, and for listeners here, if we haven't already lost you, the way, (laughs) the way that this, an example of this kind of at the bigger scale would be you have two cars that crash into each other. Um, and then, you know, you've, okay, you have three cars, one is stopped ahead and then another one is stopped in the middle. And then a third one is coming from behind to those two really quickly. It crashes into the second car and then the second car goes flying and crashes into the third where they all stop. Mm Mm-hmm. If you define your system as just those two cars, the middle one and then the last one that's coming at speed, it looks like you've transferred energy and are propelling the system forward. That second energy car is going, but you're like, well, wait, we lost energy somewhere there. Right. Right at the end of this whole thing. What you're saying is that, no, you need to account for all three cars because those are the three things that are actually interacting. Right. And so they're missing the boundaries of that physical system. Exactly. And the other problem with it, too, is the EM drive, as they talk about it, isn't scalable. So so you can show in a limited system this sort of what looks like thrust, as we talked about. But the the propulsion uh, of that thrust isn't any different than what we get from like a photonic thruster, you know, shooting photons out the back which is very, very, very slow. So the idea of even creating some form of fast propulsion off of this system, if it works exactly how they say it does, is still not a thing. So it breaks down in many points, right? Okay, so let's talk about, though, let's talk a little bit about what a photonic thruster and then an EM drive is, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the way that I understand it is you're basically shooting photons out the back of your ship, and then the basically the difference in... um you know, you're shooting a thing out that way, equal and opposite force. It's therefore pushing you the opposite way. Um, and over time you can, you know, the idea would be that you can build this almost like a, you know, the way that, um, the way that a laser beam gets built up on itself over and over again to generate a lot of thrust from a, you know, a huge amount of tiny little thrusts. 
exactly. You know, it's okay. it's a good idea if time is not a consideration, but us humans have limited lifespans and they're pretty small uh, in comparison to astronomical things. Right. Well, so so what do you so what do you mean by that? Like, what's the difference? What is the difference? Say, are we saying like it'll take a thousand years for your your ship to start? Well, I mean, not start, but maybe to get up to a speed that you're going to get anywhere okay. fast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, all right. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. I mean, well, that's, really, yeah, that's, that's what I meant, right? Like yeah. it's, you know, you're, you, you turn the key as a young man right. and then you come back and aged, you know, an old decrepit man and you're like, oh, we're going 20. Exactly. You know? And and the <laughs> part about great. that that's funny too, is everybody forgets that that's just speeding up. And I'm assuming you don't want to plow into whatever you're going to at the speed of light <laughs> or near, right? So you have to turn around and then you have to slow down at that same rate. So, uh, you know, it's, it, it has problems. <laughs> right. It's, you know, you're, you're driving a, you're driving a truck, right? You, you, you start going and then you immediately start braking because yes. you got another light up ahead. I mean, I have um, seen people plow their trucks into, into vehicles and, and walls and stuff, but that's not the preferred method of traveling no. someplace. <laughs> no, no, no. So what do you, wh- what would you say, I guess, is our current best bet? for you know uh for for getting say to mars right now you know i mean i i cannot push enough the idea of nuclear energy um sure there's there are there are issues that we need to work with but people don't seem to understand part of it's uh politicians fault part of it's media's fault but like we always talk about Chernobyl, we don't build those types of reactors anymore uh, because Chernobyl, <laughs> right? Uh, we we use different methodologies when we're doing stuff. And e- even if we're just allowed to, to move forward with the research on these things, uh, I think that we would find that I-, I don't see outside of coming up with a way to make like warp fields and that stuff, which we can also talk about because it relates to this too, the idea of negative energy in these, in these systems. But uh, unless you find a way to do that, the only source of propulsion that's really going to work for us, at least on a uh, solar system level is nuclear. Got it. Okay. Interesting. You know, it's funny. We kind of, we haven't, I mean, we did the episode way early on, on radioactive monsters, which is almost too early in the podcast lifespan for me to even be proud to say people go listen to it. You know, it's right. you get to a hundred episodes and you're like, I don't want people listening to anything past 75. Right. You know, you're like anything before episode 75, you can just ignore. Mm-hmm. We'll put that in the, uh, in the, the vault, so to speak. Have you, but, have you come across any of the, uh, like the Alcubierre warp field stuff in, in, in this, in the zero so point not, energy stuff? Not, I mean, you know, we've, what happens with this for me at least, and I'm sure it's even worse for you in some cases because Mm -hmm. you actually have a background in this. Although I don't think you go, you know, trolling the alien Twitters as hard as I do (laughs) necessarily to to try to get myself angry on the weekends. Right. But what happens for me is I'll, someone will see kind of, or hear the podcast or hear me on another show or whatever. They'll say, Hey, you know, what do you think about this paper? And then they'll send me something that was like written on MS word that has a bunch of, you know, paper in quotes, gobbledy, you know, yeah, just, you know, emojis and ridiculous equations that, you know, just be, you know, if you go line by line, it's like, well, here you said that C was one and then here you're saying C is three. So that doesn't work, mm-hmm. you know? And you're like, I don't, I don't get it. Like, I just don't understand. Um, so I either get that that'll happen or I will get someone will reach out to me who is way more, um, way more studied in this than I am. And they'll say, Hey, if you, you know, have you checked this out or this or this or whatever? And then I'm like, I'll add it to the pile of stuff I have to read, but I, you know, that pile grows every day off, off and, the cuff. I am not prepared you, to talk about this. No, you know, so right. And, and then, you know, and then you forget. And then it's like a year later and someone's like, Hey, uh, do you ever get a chance to read that? And I'm like, Oh no, yep. <laughs> no, no, not at all. You know, we're doing, we're doing a series on uh on this new thing now. Right. You know? Yeah, I get that too. And unfortunately, especially when you start interacting with a lot of conspiracy theorists or, uh, quote unquote skeptics, which are different from skeptics, uh, they'll use that as a way of 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 proving to themselves that they were correct, right? Oh, you're just avoiding this, or I'm like, no, man, you don't understand the amount of stuff that gets put on my pile that I need to go through, <laughs> right? And the, you know, and the frustrating thing too is with a lot of this, like we just 
you know, we we just had a discussion on this stuff, and we at least have heard these terms before, right? Right, and like a quarter of this discussion went completely over my head to the point that I'm gonna have to re-listen to this myself. <laughs> you know, so so you have people who you know, maybe only have a, a college or high school level understanding of physics. And, you know, it's like, yeah, the, yeah. The, some of that, some of those were words, you know, um, <laughs> but I, you know, you're talking about the Casbah effect and, you know, right. Calamari's principle and, you know, it just, it all falls apart. Right. And, right. The, and the, that, that's the always other- the problem with any of this quantum woo is it's really easy to pass off stuff as correct because nobody really has the educational background to understand it. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just like anything. You've got to put in your time of learning the background of things to understand it. You can't just jump into it out of nowhere and expect to know everything. And there really haven't been a lot of recent, like, like recently published really good books on, kind of updating the public on where quantum mechanics is. Right. Like when I, you know, I remember, I mean, I'm sure you had the same example or, or the same experience as a kid growing up. Like every other year there was a new Michio Kaku book. Right. Or a new book by, um, by Brian green. Right. Or mm-hmm. there were, there were new, new books out there that were like, well, this also includes, you know, this one includes string theory. This one includes, um, you know, all this other stuff. This one includes this. And so there were updates kind of to the realm of where quantum mechanics was, at least for people who were interested enough to buy those books. Right. You know, that's kind of fallen off, I think, because, you know, frankly, we're more, I think a lot of the stuff that's being written is more on, you know, um, kind of nanotech for beginners or, you know, and and of course it's the way, you know, AI or whatever, it's just kind of the way that the public well, public interest. Goes. Yeah, you, you exactly. Can't, it, it's a pro, a for profit industry writing books. Even if you're a scientist, you don't want to write things that nobody's reading. So you write for whatever's big. And you're right. It's AI. It's nano. Uh, you know, it's whatever uh, SpaceX. Uh, uh, Elon Musk is talking about on Twitter today. You know what I right, mean? Like, right. <laughs> Ridiculous. Uh, you know. Um, no. Yeah. And it's it it is all this. You know. So I I think that there is a bit of a. Um, I think there's a bit of a realm there that people could, you know, that would be cool. That would be an interesting thing I think to have. And I think mm-hmm. podcasts are kind of filling in that void a little bit, Yeah, but it's definitely not the same as, uh, you know, science is just having a really hard time. I think we, we've always had a hard time, but I think it's especially now right. talking to the public in a really, cause, but again, there are bigger issues right now than, you know, let's, let's let the, <laughs> Let's try to get the public to understand like things that are about to kill us, like sure. you know, anti-vaccine movements <laughs> right. and climate change. Then we can worry about whether or not they understand the, the intricacies mm-hmm. of quantum mechanics. It's, and so I understand that. It's interesting because when on on the on the surface, you're absolutely correct, but when it comes down to it, the the base issues for all of those things are still the same. And it comes down to a basic uh I guess I don't know how to say it politely, but a misunderstanding of the basis of how science works, how valid arguments are made. You know, there seems to be this idea that we can pick and choose what we want and that if it agrees with me, then it must be right. And if it doesn't, you know what I mean? There's no uh, analysis of sources. There's no. And then the other side of that, too, is science itself. We have a really big problem with research. Uh, The way that our our science system is set up in this country is there's not really a lot of money available to do a follow-up study in something, right? No, there's there's no money in disproving right. something. So you right? get that yeah. initial uh, study that comes out that's really cool, and then it might be 10 years before somebody comes along and, and tries to repeat that experiment independently. Uh, it's a challenge, and I hope it's one that I think, um, again, I think that podcasts are filling in a lot of that mm-hmm. realm. And the other thing that's cool too is, you know, there are a lot more now channels even that, um, that do stuff that are, it's like science adjacent. It's not, you know, I don't know if you watch on YouTube. Um, I'm a huge fan and proponent of, so two particular channels. One is, um, one is primitive technology where it's this, this guy, you know, um, he's, he builds like, you know, 
uh, he, he, you know, the other day he finally smelted iron right. for the first time. And I was like, oh, we in the Iron Age, boys. It's hilarious you know, like, that you mentioned that because I thought you were going to be some like major, huge, like science thing. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I watch primitive. <laughs> like, no, you know? dude, that's, well, that's, you know, honestly, it's, it is such a good way because, you know, people are like, well, we could never build the pyramids or like, mm-hmm. it must've taken us so long. And you're like, no, this guy in, I think Australia, I've never a hundred percent gotten the answer to that really, mm-hmm. yeah, I but no I should, I saying. should read his, I should read his WordPress or something, but it's like, you know, um, this guy built himself like a hut and sandals right. and a bedroll and like he smelted iron, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just one guy and there's other channels too. There's, you know. I watched the other day, I watched some guy in like uh, the Philippines make himself a hot tub. Right. You know, yep. out of mud and bamboo shoots. You know, like it's, I, I heard something, this was a few years ago and it, I honestly, I think it was a stand up comedian who said it, but it just resonated with me. And he said, you know, we all take things for granted, but think about it. How many people could you pick up and drop in the middle of the woods with nothing and make a cell phone? Right. Do all the stuff necessary, all of the right. knowledge needed to build all the things to come out with a cell phone. And that's obviously a little bit of an exaggeration, but I mean, the the premise is true. If, if you know, anybody listening, think about it. If you were dropped in the middle of a forest right now today, no contact with anybody, uh, what could you do? What could you make? Do you, do you know enough to survive simply? Do you know enough to survive in comfort? And so I kind of took that as a personal challenge. And so, you know, I'm I'm building my own foundry, build my own forge, do all this stuff, learn how to do this, learn how to do that for no other reason than just, you know, not that I ever think I'm going to be dropped in the middle of the woods, but uh, I'd feel better knowing that I could survive uh, if I was. (laughs) It's hilarious. I used to, I used to argue that we should give that as a final exam in unit operations, which is the chemical engineering kind of fundamental lab course, Mm -hmm. right? I always thought that what we should do is we should, we should bring the students out for like a picnic and be like, okay, build me an engine. Right. And if you can build me an engine, all, you know, all it has to do is like, you know, lift this cup of rocks, yep. right? Five feet. If you can build me something that can do that, you get an A in this class. That would be amazing. It is. I'd support it's that. All, it's all fundamental kind of thinking, right? Yeah. And I think that solves one of the problems too, that we have with uh, the general public in academia today is there's this mentality of book smarts versus practicality, the engineer versus technician or the scientist versus the engineer or whatever. Right. And to some point they're not wrong. There is a lot of book learning that happens. There's people with PhDs who have never set their hands on anything. Right. Sure. Uh, so I think that there is some, uh, some validity to that, to that question. And I think your proposed solution would fix that. <laughs> oh yeah. There's, there's something to it. I also like the idea of just like, you know, torturing undergraduate students in the woods by being like, you know, <laughs> build me an oven. You know, like I just think that'd be kind of fun too. Like, right. you know, um, no, but the other part of this that I think is, so the other channel that I really like is the hydraulic press channel. Mm-hmm. I, and I don't know if you've ever seen that one. Is that the one where they just crush things? It's, it's so, it's so much more than crushing things. <laughs> he just made a thing. It's a, he just made a thing. He calls it the worm maker 3000. I think is what he calls it. Mm-hmm. And it's just literally like a, um, it's like a cylinder that goes into a piston or a piston that goes into a cylinder, but it has holes drilled out of it on the top. And so when he crushes stuff, it just makes really long worms. <laughs> um, but like his channel too, he, you know, he's like, well, what, you know, what happens if I try to, um, you know, what happens if I try to crush a bunch of stacks of paper? Right. Mm-hmm. And it makes an explosion or he's like, you know, well, what happens with this? And, you know, it's just, again, kind of a cool way, I think, of kids and people getting at least getting a little bit of science in their daily lives. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a lot. You know, it's just well, a little and doing bit, it in I a way a that's thing. fun to watch, too. I had an idea for a while that I still might do. Uh, and I'm going to say it here. And if somebody steals it from me, that's great because I'd rather watch it than do it. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I run uh, the rocketry club here for the National Association of Rocketry in my area. And one of the things that I have always wanted to do is make a YouTube channel called Will It Launch and essentially just strap, you know, rockets onto various items to see how they fly and then, you know, analyze that and see what we have to do to that thing to actually make it fly. Uh, I thought that would always be interesting. Dude, I would watch the hell of that. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I'm all about that life. Right. (laughs) Well, it sounds like we got to start doing some YouTube stuff then, man. I don't don't know. (laughs) We've we've always talked about here starting to do experiments, right? Mm -hmm. Like that was one of the first things I actually did, 
you know, back when I was just doing research for astonishing legends was, I was like, Oh, I can, I can do this experiment to show why, what they're saying works. Right. right. And so it was for the Mary Celeste, which is this ship that, you know, um, they don't know how it sank or whatever, or what happened to the crew. And, you know, it looked like it was just alcohol, you know, alcohol leaking out of these wooden crates that they had or, or caskets that were made out of the wrong kind of Oak. Um, you know, the alcohol evaporated, created an explosive atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And then the people on the ship got freaked out and abandoned ship and then got overtaken by a wave. That's the, you know, TLDR kind of spoiler, I guess thing. But uh, the experiment I did was just literally like, you know, um, the question was, well, why didn't the ship itself burn down then? Or why didn't the caskets burn down? Mm-hmm. And so um, I was like, well, if you just if you had an alcohol filled container and then you lit it on fire, the explosion of the alcohol happened so quickly right. that um, it won't it won't burn the paper at all. And so I just made like a little paper ship inside a thing of vodka and then, you know, shook it up and then lit it on fire and, you know, it didn't burn and it popped and it was a lot of fun. But anyways, <laughs> since that time, I've been like, I would love to do a YouTube channel on just like experiments for these kind of weird things. Yep. And I've never done it just because, I mean, first off, you know, who has the time? It's a lot of time. Yes. Right. Yeah, I've <laughs> and, had that same iMovie, mentality, right? Like iMovie is not easy to use. No, you know, it's, no it is it not. It sucks. But yeah, I mean, um, you have like simple things like, I don't know, I got re I, I just got i don't know tired of hearing these arguments about like uh like gas stations like oh they add water to their gas here i'm like no that that is not a thing that happens let me show you right <laughs> let me show you what happens when you add water to gas you shake it up and it's all mixed together for like three seconds and then all the water's on the bottom <laughs> right and then, and then that's it and then uh it won't you know it's it's just oh god what a ridiculous thing right it's just very yeah. simple things like that I've, i i i'm kind of with you but again it comes back to man who has time it has the time yeah um Anyway, so quickly before I guess we uh, before we wrap it up, I had so many other things I wanted to talk about. And then we hit the hour mark and I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, my goodness, (laughs) we got to have you on again. You know, I love talking to you, man. It's it's been a lot of fun. But uh, quickly, you know, what what kind of stuff have you done on the show that you think someone who's getting into this? Some, you know, some of our listeners always say to us, you know, we love the show. We wish there was. we wish there were more shows like this that did science, you know, and, and frankly, sometimes, you know, we get people that'll say, well, we wish, you know, we wish there was more science or, you know, we wish there was more uh, ghosts or whatever. And so we always try to point them out to other shows like this. And so yours is one that I point people out to, to say, Hey, here's a show with more science. That's really good. Uh, but what episodes have you done recently that you think would be good for people to kind of jump on to listen to? Um, You know, I've, uh, when I started the show, I did a lot of interviews with, with academics and scientists and, and people in industry, and people liked that. But I've started kind of branching out from there into other types of things. And one of the types of shows that we do that seems to have a lot of, uh, uh, I guess, feedback is almost science history. So we did a three-part bio on Nikola Tesla, uh, and we teamed up with uh, Amber and Andrew from Into the Portal and did kind of yep. the... Uh, the more uh, wooey side of Nikola Tesla too. Uh, and then we did one that was another three-parter on Isaac Newton. And both of those seem to be received really well uh, because people in history and science, especially people of that caliber who are just, you know, way above and, and uh, you know, ahead of their time, uh, aren't always the most normal of people, uh, <laughs> to put it nicely. But no. so it's it, those ones have been pretty good. And then also we did a couple of episodes for NASA's Day of Remembrance for, you know, the Apollo Challenger in Columbia. Uh, and people really enjoyed those ones. So I would say if you're looking for science that's not hard science and just maybe even a little bit of history in there, those are some really good episodes that we've had some good feedback for. So cool. Great. And so where can people find you? Sure. Uh, we're at uh, a dash of science dot com. And then I also do, uh, let's say I'm on Twitter at physicist, Chris, and I do occasional Twitch live streams. Uh, I'm starting to do that more. I've kind of created this forum idea where I'll take a couple of people, uh, who aren't necessarily heavy in science and we'll just talk about a subject so we can get kind of an idea of where the general consensus is on something. And then we can expand from there. So those are going to be, uh, more live streams on, on Twitch. So that's uh, twitch.com slash physicist, Chris. Uh, and then facebook.com slash dash of science is our group. You can check us out there, find all the updates. So uh, I hope you guys tune in and listen and enjoy it. 
Nice. Yeah, definitely do that. And uh, thanks so much for coming on and uh, we'll talk again soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Cool. All right. As always, this has been the mad scientist podcast. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. I'm not sure when this one is going to drop necessarily, but it's likely going to drop somewhere in the middle of our Unabomber series. So this is just kind of a nice scientific interlude before we get into his mathematics and uh, kind of the science of what he was doing. But uh, thanks again so much for listening. This is has always been a Damage Hippie Productions episode and uh, copyright the Mad Scientist podcast. Thank you. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at Mad Scientist Pod or at Team Giant Squid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) Thank you. This has been a Damn It Chippy production. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.